This is Solve It for Kids. Hello, my amazing and curious friends. My name is Jennifer, the Dean of all things STEM and STEAM, and this is Solve It for Kids, the podcast that gives kids and families a peek inside the real world of scientists, engineers, and experts as they solve problems in their jobs using creativity, cooperation, and critical thinking. And now, please welcome to the show my podcast partner, Galactic Space Geek, Jeff Ganya. Hello, Jennifer, and hello, listeners. Boy, do we have a varied episode for you today because we are talking to someone who knows about a lot of different topics. Yes, this is going to be so much fun. What problem are we solving today? How did the computer evolve over time? How did the computer evolve over time? Ooh, this is going to be a very intriguing discussion. Who is our guest today, Jeff? Our guest today is the wonderful Rachel Ignatowski. She is a New York Times best-selling nonfiction author and illustrator. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Oh, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you all about science books. Well, and that's our favorite topic, of course, science <laughs> and science writing. So what we're going to talk about is how did the computer evolve over time? So I'm curious, how did you pick this topic? Have you always been interested in computers and science since you were a kid? How did this all start? Well, you know, my first experience with a computer was when I was just seven years old. And I was at my local library. I waddle up to a Mac color classic, which kind of like <laughs> dates me. It was the 90s. And I immediately plop down and I start using the paint program to draw Great. a psychedelic giraffe. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and since then, I have been using computers as a tool to create things. And they've always just been a big part of my life when it comes to writing stories or illustrating them. And I was thinking about the first generation of computers, which I knew were built around World War II. Yes. And these were, you know, these were machines that were built for war. They were kept in ultra top secret labs. Yep, exactly. And like, how did we go from that to a little kid being able to walk into her local library and begin to draw right away? Now, and that's the story that I wanted to tell in my newest book, The History of the Computer. Very cool. I I like that. I do want to back up just a little bit where your newest book, The History of the Computer, is what we're talking about. But usually when kids get into computers as young as you did, they end up doing something as a career with computers, whether it's programming or something along those lines. How is it that you came about writing books? You know, for me, I think it was the drawing that led it first. Oh, I, okay. yeah. yeah, you know, I always had an interest in science, but I would turn every science project in school into an art project. Oh. I would. <laughs> okay. And that's just the kind of kid that I was like, everything was through the lens of art. And after I graduated from art school, I started 
drawing infographics about topics that I thought were interesting, topics about human anatomy, topics about, you know, just topics about history, like women in science, Um, all of these things that just really, I personally wanted to learn more about, and I thought it was important to teach others. And that's why I have used my art to tackle topics that are kind of complicated topics like climate change, women's rights, and now a technological history that spans over 25,000 years. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry, Um, kids. The book's not that long. Yeah. No, 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 no. (laughs) It's not that long at all. It's it's like the Epcot ride of technology. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a very cool ride. Okay, so where did computers first begin? I mean, we know that they started really kind of in World War II, but are you saying that we had computers way before then or something that acted like a computer? Well, the story of computers starts with the very first math tools that were ever created. So if we think about a computer as a tool that allows us to remember things better, store information, that allows us to do complicated math problems... Essentially, it's a thinking tool, just kind of like how a hammer is a tool that helps us strike a nail. A computer is a tool that lets us solve really big problems to think better, to increase our mental capacity. I like that. Yes, absolutely. So if we go all the way back to prehistoric time, and of course, there weren't computers around then, but you have to think about like early humanity. They're in caves. And what are their first thinking number tools? Well, it's their fingers and their toes. They're counting on their hands to try and keep track. Yeah. So it's like, what happens when you have more than 10 sheep? Well, life gets a little complicated. (laughs) You have to have friends who also have fingers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone gets together. They start counting on toes. They start, people start notching on stone, carving into bones. And these are the very first number tools that allow us to expand our mental ability to store information and then start thinking about more complicated problems. So the more complicated life becomes, so does our need for thinking tools. Sure. Ah, Very good. Okay. So I want to make a, I would love to talk to you about the entire 25,000 years, but our (laughs) podcast is not that long. So I want to jump us all the way forward to a different type of computer that kids nowadays don't think about. They think about their phones, their tablets, or a laptop. But a lot of us were, a lot of kids today were exposed to computers as humans in the Hidden Figures movie in that story with, say, Katherine Johnson and how before we had technological computers that we're talking on now, computers were actually people that did computing. And you know what? That was a term that was first coined during the Industrial Revolution. So um, just like how assembly lines broke down manufacturing into simple tasks, people began breaking down complicated math problems into smaller math equations that were then solved by what was called human computers. So the term for a computer was actually a person way before it was a machine. And this kind of work was actually super boring and tedious. (laughs) Yeah. There's a famous mathematician named Charles Babbage who worked with Ada Lovelace, who you might have heard of if you read my book, Women in Science, the first female computer, actually the first computer programmer ever, who just so happened to be female. He was working on nautical tables 
for the British Navy at the time. And he was so bored that he screamed out one day, I wish to God these calculations were executed by steam. And it's why he began trying to invent a mechanical computer, which he was never successful at, but it laid the groundwork for the first generation of programmable computers that I mentioned before that happened during World War II. Yeah, that's a pretty incredible story and in how Ada Byron Lovelace took kind of took that up and, and then worked on, on all of Babbage's stuff. That's really cool. You know what? The thing that I think is crazy about computers is size. The first ones were gigantic. <laughs> I mean, if you've heard the podcast before, you've heard me talk about how my class in college, I was a class of 1990 at the Naval Academy. We were the first ones to be issued computers. They were Zenith 248K, and they were like <laughs> as big as your desk, you know, which kids can't even understand. I don't even think it, I mean, it's probably what, like one tiny thousandth or something of what our phones can do. Can you talk about size and how that changed over the years? Well, when you think of a computer at its basic components, it is made up of logic switches that are made out of transistors, on and off switches that kind of move electricity, almost like a faucet through like a complex maze of water spigots. So transistors used to be these big, mechanical magnetic switches used, for example, on the Harvard Mark I, one of the first early generation programmable computers created during the Manhattan Project. So those would break. And again, super slow. They had to physically open and close. So then they came up with something a little better, vacuum tubes. Right. Yeah. And these had no moving parts. But Again, they were fragile like light bulbs and they Uh would burst and break. And again, we're talking about transistors nowadays, just to give you reference, are microscopic. So you're talking about something that is like physically (laughs) as big as a light bulb. So, yeah, of course it has to be big. (laughs) Because you have multiple ones, right, is what you're saying. That's why it was so big. You need a ton of transistors. You need a ton of on and off switches to create these logic gates to have a computer do something, you know, super complicated. So over time, the technology kept getting better and better. We started creating solid state transistors, but still you had to, you know, there's all these components that you had to then like solder together and wires you had to put together. And that (laughs) was a big tangled mess. So we're getting better and better. But then an invention happened and it was called the computer chip, the integrated circuit that took all of those components and put it etched into one singular chip. And a piece of technology that got to be one of the first to take advantage of this was the Apollo Guidance Computer. This Ah. is the first computer used in a spaceship, and it is the computer that got the first astronauts to the moon. And the Apollo Guidance Computer, now let me just backtrack a little. It was the NASA program, and the Apollo program was the biggest most well-funded science program in human yes. history. Yes. <laughs> and it's because of those deep pockets that they could afford such a new and expensive type of technology. Right. And again, like computers were the size of rooms back then. We're talking, how yes. do you get a computer that's the size of a room to fit in an Apollo space shuttle that can only fit like one or two dudes and also <laughs> like deal with the vibrations and and solar flares and all the crazy stuff that happens in space. Right. 
you know? So they built the integrated circuit. They used it in the Apollo guidance computer. It was programmed by Margaret Hamilton, another leader yes. in computer programming. Yes. She coined the term software engineer. That job didn't exist before her. And that was a huge success. And because of all of this work that went into the NASA program, guess what was kind of like 10 years later, not even 10 years later, a couple of years later, all these really high-tech components from the Apollo program and from other government-funded programs like ARPA, they were kind of floating around the Bay Area and tinkerers and people who just wanted to create a computer that could fit on your desk. They were lucky enough to be able to play with those really high-tech computer parts and share ideas and kind of work together towards something that would resemble a personal computer. Yes. And thankfully they did. Now we carry them with us everywhere we go. (laughs) (laughs) So in addition to, or aside from, you know, obviously jumping from the size, we wouldn't be able to have them, like Jennifer just said, we wouldn't be able to have them in our pockets and on our desktops, carrying around in backpacks if it wasn't for the size. Is there another addition? I think kind of a lot of people know that. Is there another part of the history of computers that was such a significant leap in maybe a technological improvement? I would say accessibility. And what does accessibility mean when we talk about computers? Well, let's go back to that big room of, you know, classified computers at UPenn's campus with ENIAC, (laughs) with women running around, plugging all the switches in. Computers for a very long time required a ton of technical knowledge to be able to approach. Um, You need to know how to code. Honestly, the first generation of personal computers, like, you know, the 1977 Commodore PET, the Radio Shack TRS-80. You had one of those. Oh, I love it. (laughs) I had one of those. I actually own what's called the 1977 personal computer Trinity. These are the first personal computers that were really on the market. And the Apple II is also a part of that Trinity. And I'm lucky enough to own all three of those computers and get to play with them. Yeah. That's fun. (laughs) We take them around with us sometimes. We got to take them to Comic-Con. And you know what? Actually, this is exactly my point. So these first generation of personal computers, they're just this like black screen with a blinking light. And you have to know command code to be able to even start playing with them. Right. And then let's jump seven years to 1984. And let's talk about there's the 1984 Macintosh comes out and I own this computer too. And I take this one with me to Comic-Con as well. And little kids are coming up to it and they're immediately, they're starting to play with it. Like they've owned it their whole life. Now, what's the difference between that computer and the first generation of personal computers? It is a desktop metaphor, graphic user interface. So for those who don't know what that is, you actually do. It is your mouse that can (laughs) click on little icons. Your icons represent what they look like in the real world. And because, you know, a file looks like a piece of paper, a folder looks like a folder, a clock looks like a clock, your computer is putting on a theatrical show that tells you what the programming, all the, the mathematical wonderland that's happening inside the machine. And because of these graphic design elements, the artwork allows someone as young as a seven-year-old perhaps to walk on and walk on right without no onboarding no no schooling 
they start clicking around and a oh, surprise they can paint their giraffe now with no previous knowledge so yeah. and that's the big shift that happened is creating icons and a user interface basically almost like a video game screen on your computer that allows you to interact with it the way that you want to sure completely agree i think I heard one time, I know Steve Jobs gets a whole lot of credit and he wasn't the only human being that made graphic user interface better and everything, but he gets the credit for when he finally came out with the iPhone, he, and who knows if this is apocryphal or not, but he apparently told his designers that he wanted the icons and the screen to look so good that owners of the phone would want to lick their screen. That's uh, that, 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 yeah, that's supposedly how pretty he wanted it to be for people to be able to use it better. Don't lick your screen, kids. <laughs> no, no, because PSA. there's there, there. I've done a book about how one of the places that has the most germs is your cell phone. Don't oh, do that. no. Well, let me <laughs> don't, don't do point, that. <laughs> let me just say this in case anyone's listening and, you know, they're like, but wait, Rachel, but wait. Although the 1984 Macintosh computer came out is the example that I used. It was not the first computer to have the desktop metaphor. That's what they like to call those graphics. It was just sure. the first one that was affordable enough that people could actually buy it. So that's the why I like to use that example. And I know we talk a lot about Steve Jobs. And in my book, I talk about different people throughout history. But it's also very important to note that although, you know, some people become louder personalities, the work of computer history is thousands and thousands of people collaboratively working together towards this goal. And there's a lot of unsung heroes as well that, you know, just kind of working away together on a team that you'll never hear about. So although Steve Jobs is someone that we like to hold up and be like, what a genius. He's just one of the more louder personalities in a group of incredible people. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember learning basic in high school so that we could see, we had to learn how to write little programs so that our computer would do what it was supposed to do. But I don't remember having a mouse until many years later. I don't know if that that was just because of the computers that I had. I mean, I'm wondering, when did we get to the point where we had mouse and then touchscreen? Like, how did we make that leap to touchscreen, which is probably, in, I'm guessing, the last 10 years or so? Or has that been longer? I don't know. Well, there's a big difference between when the technology is invented and when it becomes mass produced and circulated to the public. So I would say for touch screens, even though like people have been working towards that technology for a long time before it, it really was the release of the iPhone in 2007 Uh, that really kicked that off. And for mice, um, although the concept of a mouse was created in the 1960s by Douglas Engelbart at SRI, it was part of his. NLS, the online system, which was shown as the mother of all demos. It's like the first demo ever. (laughs) And I could go into that for a while because I'm a little obsessed with Douglas Engelbart and just all of his philosophies. I think he's, it's just kids look them up. (laughs) But um, that was like the first demo of a mouse. But I would say that mice became really, you know, again, like this is why we talk about Apple a lot the Macintosh is when a lot of people first bought their first computer and that came with a mouse. And the reason people bought it is because they had a system for desktop publishing where you can 
create a document on the computer and then print it out with a printer that you could also buy. And that like disrupted an entire industry of really like hard to do layout and printing and design. And all of a sudden people started buying computers just so they could print out their own flyers and zines and things like that. So, but, but when did Microsoft come into it and have like Microsoft Word? Because, oh yeah, well, Microsoft was working with IBM this whole time. Right, right. So, I mean, when was that? So I don't have it in front of me, but I believe 1981 is when the first IBM PC hit market and then they quickly overtook. So actually scratch that. I'm completely wrong about the mouse. I would say go back even further to 1977 is when people started really using a mouse because, um, yeah, because the Apple two had a mouse and so did didn't the trs 80 also have a mouse so yeah people started using them did it no i know ours didn't i mean we were everything was typing i know yeah. my i'm pretty sure the apple two has a mouse i you mean I, I mean it's been a really long time so <laughs> I, i'd have to I, open I, up I, the book and start <laughs> looking around <laughs> the, i mean i and it's funny because you know i mean Yes, everybody loves Apple. And I think if you're a graphics person, you love Apple. I'm more, and always have been, a Microsoft, IBM type, you know, person. I tried to make the switch to like the Apple laptops and was just like, oh my gosh, it's too much. Just because I've learned the other way. And I know there are people (laughs) who are different. And I'm guessing because you're an illustrator, you tend to use Macs a lot more. Yes. Well, it's not just that. It's because I went to a elementary school that onboarded with Macintosh. Ah, see, it's what uh, you learn, right? That's what yep. I learned. I learned on an IBM. So all of these years later, I'm still, <laughs> I'm still the IBM person, or you know, so to speak. Microsoft. And now that I'm thinking about it, I I do think the Apple II did have a mouse, and people were buying that one specifically to use VisiCalc which was the, it was like Excel program. So again, for people to buy computers, it's the software that really motivates Oh, that's true. It's what they use it for. Because a lot of people, and so we're talking, when we're talking about like a lot of people, we're still talking about a very small percentage of people owning computers. And it really wasn't until I would say the nineties when an application called the World Wide Web yes. used the internet to make the internet accessible. Did people really start buying computers right, in, right. In, in mass? And, you know, now I would say there are more people who actually have smartphones than people who have bought personal computers. And, you know, probably right. I have a lot of opinions about that as well. <laughs> <laughs> so, I would like to, we're getting on in the conversation, and I would like to, instead of getting kind of stuck in that cell phone mode, which would almost seem to be a logical next step, I kind of want to jump into the future of, I just mentioned something that Steve Jobs said, I have heard Elon Musk talk about Tesla and the future of Tesla as they are not building cars that have computers on board. They are building computers that have wheels underneath. Do you have any thoughts on sort of how that progression, how much of a computer a Tesla car is, and just how integrated computers are into our lives now? You can buy a refrigerator now that has a screen on the front, and it will reorder your food for you. So just how integrated computers are getting in our lives. 
Well, the Internet of Things have been happening for quite a while. So when you think about a computer, it's really a, it becomes a convergence of technology. You know, I like to think of it as almost like a little snowball that picks up other pieces of technology on the way. Okay. So, you know, I remember when I was going to school in the early 2000s, I had a little backpack that had my iPod and then I would have my Game Boy and then I would have my flip phone and I just had a backpack full of electronics. Now all of that stuff has converged into our iPhone. Right. At the same time, you know, we have a little computer in almost everything nowadays. Anything that's a smart device is a device that's connected to the internet, that's storing information that we can communicate remotely. Computers have been in cars for a very, very long time. And Musk likes to kind of, you know, a lot of times with these like tech billionaires, they like to say something that's been happening for a while and then claim that, oh, this is mine. It's almost like the (laughs) metaverse. It's like people have been going online and especially with video games, putting on headsets and communicating in a metaverse, whether it's like an online game or just, you know, talking on their phone all day. For a very, very long time. So, yeah, I do think that's where it's going. I think there is going to be more convergences of technology, but also I think the future is ubiquitous technology. And that means sort of technology all around you in a way where you can't really see how you're interfacing with it. So whether your walls become the screen of the device or perhaps we kind of are sort of interacting with wearables a lot more where the technology is in our watch, in our shirt. And then, you know, we're getting little beam ups wherever we go all around. The future is going to look like kind of whatever we imagine it to be. And that could be a world where there's pop-up ads on your dining room table every day, or that could be a world. (laughs) Yeah. Or that could be a world where we're using our technology to collaboratively create and communicate and to build a better world. And it's, we're going to have to really be thoughtful about how we build this out. Absolutely. I hope so. I mean, and we've actually had on the show, we've had a Duke uh, University engineer who works creating self-driving cars. And even though that's her job to do, she is not sure they should be on the road. So that kind of goes to your question, Jeff. Like, what are we going to do with that? Because exactly what you just said, Rachel, it's all about thinking and how is this going to work? And, you know, there's a lot of questions around that. But I want to ask you, because we are getting a little close to the end, I want to ask you to tell us about your book, The History of the Computer and where people can find it. And maybe another little tidbit about what they can expect or some surprises they can find in the book. So this book, like I said before, is 25,000 years of human history. And that sounds like a lot, but each chapter is actually broken down in a big shift in technology. And it's filled to the brim with illustrations because like I said before, I'm an art kid first. And I think that illustrations are like the most powerful way to learn a new topic. So you get introduced with all of the cool drawings that are silly and serious and filled with fun facts. And then you can start reading because you already know what you're going to read about because you looked at all the pretty pictures. And this book takes you on that journey. And each chapter is broken up into sort of different infographics. So there's a little timeline there's cool. stories throughout history. Love we timelines. highlight different. I love timelines too. I love a good timeline. We also like highlight people and inventors, designers, artists, 
engineers throughout history and their philosophies around computing. And then we also highlight different inventions. So three different inventions on each time period. So I like that. It's a wild ride. And it's filled with little, yeah, it's filled with little fun facts. One of my favorite fun facts is in the computer that was in the Apollo shuttle, the Apollo guidance computer, it used this sort of memory that was called core rope memory, which was nicknamed little old lady memory because it's this like beautiful little woven tapestry of wires that was physically woven by hand by all female factory workers. So I thought that was really cool. Wow. That's I like that. That's <laughs> it's just amazing. Like kind of romantic. You're like, oh, there's this little like metal blanket that's, you know, a little metal blanket and a gold box going to the moon. There's something like romantic about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, that sounds great. So I think we have reached that point in our show where we like to ask all of our guests if they have a challenge for our listeners. And I can't wait to hear this one. Okay, buckle up, everyone. (laughs) What what is an object you use every day that you want to learn more about, like a light bulb, a car, or even a pencil? Learn about the inventors and how the tools have changed over time. Oh, I like that. That sounds I like how fun. You added the that sounds overtime. a lot of fun. Yes. This is going to be good. Well, and especially after you've listened to the show, we've talked about how computers have gone from being, you know, ginormous to something you stick in your back pocket, right? It's crazy. Well, this has been a fabulous chat. Yes. I really enjoyed learning all about the history of computers. Thanks so much for being on Solve It for Kids, Rachel. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you guys so much for having me. I had a blast and Always a cute excuse to talk about my computer collection. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. What a fun conversation and someone just like us that loves a bunch of different topics. Learning the history of the computer and some of the steps along the way that I had never heard of before. I think that was fun, but I gotta tell you, this challenge, while it sounds super simple, you actually have to go pick an object you want to go learn something about. But then I think the challenging part is how are you then going to go learn that? We're going yeah. straight to Google, aren't we, Jen? <laughs> no, books. We're going to books. Okay, too. books yes, first. Absolutely. No, it was really fun. And I think this is one of those cool history STEM things, right? Like how computers came to be. Yes. And you know, you could go in so many different ways. You could go how computers were created. But to me, honestly, because I've lived with the giant, not the giant giant, but the big desktop computers that take up half your desk, to now something you hold in your hand that is way faster. Yes. And more, you know, complicated. I think that's a really cool way. So maybe that's something one of our listeners will do. Maybe. And one of my favorites is when you learn the history of an object and something that's been created, you can start to get more ideas on what that object may turn into in the future. Oh, exactly. Exactly. So that's your challenge, listeners. Go out there and look up information about the computers or find another object that you want to learn more about and do some research, which is what we nonfiction authors do a lot of. And if you find a cool fun fact, 
Share it with us on our social media. We are at KidSolve at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And don't forget to check out our website, SolveForKids.com, where we will have a page for this episode and every episode. And at the bottom, we recommend books, kids' books, for you to read and learn more about this topic. And Rachel has lots more books than the one we focused on today. So those will be listed on there. Jennifer has a ton of them. So do your research in books first before you go to that Google crutch. And until next time, you'll hear Jen and Jeff on Solve Solve It It for for Kids. Kids.